We'll be looking this morning at Amos chapter 5, verses 1 through 17. We've been going through Amos together. It may be difficult at sometimes to say we're enjoying going through Amos together. As Amos points out for us, our need for repentance and the call of the Lord. But if you would please give attention now to the word of the living God. It is inspired. It is completely without error. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Amos chapter 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. Fallen, no more to rise, is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. For thus says the Lord God, the city that went out by a thousand shall have a hundred left. That which went out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel, and do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba. For Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like a fire in the house of Joseph and devour it with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood, and cast down righteousness to the earth, he who made the Pleiades and Orion, and turns deep darkness into the morning, and darkens the day into night, who calls for the waters of the sea, and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name who makes destruction flash forth against the strong, so that destruction comes upon the fortress. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Therefore, because you trample on the poor, and you exact taxes of grain from him, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not dwell in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. For I know how many are your transgressions and how great are your sins. You who afflict the righteous, who take a bribe and turn aside the needy in the gate. Therefore, he who is prudent will keep silent in such a time. It is an evil time. Seek good and not evil, that you may live And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil, and love good, and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord, in all the squares there shall be wailing, and in all the streets they shall say, Alas! Alas, they shall call the farmers to mourning and to wailing those who are skilled in lamentation. And in all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst, says the Lord. 
Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's ask for His blessing upon it this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask that You would teach us from this Your Word. That You would show us that You are indeed the true and living God. That You have sent a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, O Lord, that we are accountable to You. Lord, bless us this morning. For Christ's sake. Amen. Have you ever had the experience of something totally unexpected happen? Maybe you were at work and having a particularly bad day. Nothing went right. And then as you went home, there was typical Houston traffic to deal with. And as you are muttering to yourself on your way home, trying to plan how to live out your miserable evening after your miserable day, you walk in the door to find, surprise, it's a party in your honor. Totally unexpected. Or maybe something a little less pleasant. Maybe you have a meeting with your supervisor at work, and you're called in and you're expecting that You've worked hard and perhaps it's time for a raise or a promotion. And you walk in and you're all set to go and you sit down and you're being told that you're being laid off because the company is cutting back. It comes completely out of the blue. You're not ready for it at all. We have a fascination with these kinds of things, don't we? There's a story that goes down through our culture of a king that had this sort of thing happen. His name was Oedipus. He was like kind of an ancient Columbo. He was trying to investigate the murder of the previous king, and he kept asking questions, kept being persistent, and people kept coming up to him and saying, you need to leave this alone, Oedipus. Give it a rest. You don't need to know the answers to these questions. But he kept pushing and pushing and pushing, and he finds out that he is the murderer. Something completely unexpected. This is also found in the scriptures, in the story of, of David and Nathan. As Nathan builds up David with the story of how this man mistreated this lamb. And David is furious. He can't understand why someone would take a lamb, an only lamb from someone, and he says, this man must be killed. And Nathan looks at him and points his finger and he says, you are the man. Ooh. That's really what's happening here this morning in Amos. You see, Amos has been denouncing sin. And as we saw in chapter 1, the Israelites were cheering him on. They couldn't wait to get more of the fire and brimstone. They love fire and brimstone when it's raining on someone else. And here in this chapter, there is a turnabout. Amos, following in the footsteps of Nathan, looks at Israel and he says, You are the man. That's the scene we're observing here. And so in this text this morning, we're going to see that Amos' job is the same as Nathan's, to bring a knowledge of Israel's sin to themselves. 
to show them their need of repentance and their need of restoration with the Lord. And to see that, we will look at three things. First, we will see sorrow in Israel. Second, we will see sin in Israel. And third, we will see the Savior in Israel. Sorrow, sin, and a Savior. Let's begin then by looking at the sorrow that is found in Israel. We see it right away here in verse 1 of chapter 5. Hear this word that I take up over you in lamentation, O house of Israel. The first thing that we see here is there is a destruction that is approaching Israel, and it is certain. This is a familiar beginning. If you look back in your Bibles, you will see chapter 4 begins the same way. Hear this word. Chapter 3 begins the same way. Hear this word. We can imagine that when Amos says this here, that there's a bit of cringing amongst the Israelites. The kind of cringing that comes from people who are used to being beaten. Because in chapter 3, they were told to hear a word the Lord had against them. And in chapter 4, to hear a word that He had against them. In chapter 3, there were words of punishment. And in chapter 4, a proclamation of Israel's sins. And now here again, God is describing for Israel the certain destruction that is approaching. But it comes with a different kind of tone. Do you see this? It's a word that Amos takes up over Israel in lamentation. It is a tone of sorrow, of regret, of sadness. It's a formal kind of tone, a tone that would be used at a funeral. Now, previously in chapter 3, Amos had used the tone of rebuke of instruction. And in chapter 4, you'll recall, he used this great mocking tone, calling the Israelites cows because they were so concerned about the material and the here and the now. But here there is a tone of sorrow. It is the tone of a funeral. And funerals are sad occasions, aren't they? You see, this too is a sad occasion. Because Israel, virgin Israel, has fallen in verse 2. And it is a great fall. Because she has fallen and forsaken on her land. Forsaken in the land of her inheritance. And look at the end of verse 2. There is none to raise her up. This is a certain destruction that is approaching Israel. But it is also a great destruction. Look at verse 3. For thus says the Lord God, The city that went out by a thousand shall have a hundred left, and that which went out by a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. <clears throat> now, this great destruction is very jarring. Israel has fallen, and no one can pick her up, but there's really only one problem here. Israel hasn't fallen yet. As a matter of fact, in Israel right now, it's actually the exact opposite. The kingdom of Israel has reached its greatest height in history. They had achieved great military victories. Their enemies are on the run. They have defeated the Syrians. They have expanded their borders. This is not the time of defeat 
and retreat. This is the time of victory and advancement. But it's not just a military victory. There's also a great booming economy. Now, some of us are old enough to remember the old dot-com boom. It seems like everything repeats itself, doesn't it? As we now go through this again, the names are different. But once again, we're starting to see investment and great growth in Internet and computer companies. But in the 90s, there was this great boom. It seemed like America could do anything it wanted because the stock market was soaring. Deficits were non-existent. That was nothing compared to what was happening in Israel. Look down with me at verse 11, just for one example of how good it was. You have built houses of hewn stone, Amos says. What that means is, rather than building homes out of wood or pieces of stone stacked up, They took great quarried stone and fashioned walls and floors and ceilings out of it. It would be like if you went home and your neighbor had knocked down his house and built one up out of solid marble. You would look at it and you would say, that must have cost a fortune. Yes. How could someone possibly do that? Isn't that a bit excessive? Yes. That's exactly what's happening here in Israel. The economy is so great, for some, that they can go to excesses and build beyond what they need to build. But it's not just military victories. It's not just a booming economy. Religious life was flourishing in Israel. This was not a time of agnosticism and atheism. Oh, no. There were pilgrimages by the thousands to Bethel. They traveled all the way to the very south of Beersheba. Beersheba is actually in the south of Judah. They traveled that far to do religious duties. And so we might ask ourselves, what could possibly be better? What politician would not want to campaign on a platform of safety, prosperity, and stability? Life could never be better than it is now here in Israel. And yet, at the same time, we see that there is this great destruction coming upon them. It will overturn everything that they have labored for. It is so great, we might even call it universal. A universal destruction. There is a a shocking and vivid description of this here in verse 3. A city that had a thousand shall have a hundred left, and those which have a hundred shall have ten left. Now, When we describe something as being universally and completely destroyed, there's a word we use for it. Maybe you've used it. We say that something or someone was decimated, right? Completely destroyed. We use it in sports, for example. When the team loses by seven or eight touchdowns, we say they were just decimated. They shouldn't even have been on the field, right? Do you know where decimated comes from? It comes from the ancient practice that the Romans used to deal with cowardly legions. That is, soldiers who ran away from the battle. And what they did was, they decimated them. They would make all the legionnaires line up in a row. And they would go down through and count them. One, two, three, four, five, six, 
seven, eight, nine, ten. And then they would kill the tenth man. And then they would go thus to twenty and kill the twentieth man. And go then to thirty and kill the thirtieth man. They would decimate them, kill one in ten. Complete destruction. Except for here, Amos is telling us this is not decimation. This is the reverse. Nine in ten will be killed. Only one in ten will survive. It's beyond anything that we could possibly imagine, this destruction. It will fill the entire land with weeping. Look at verse 16. In the squares there shall be wailing. There'll be wailing of farmers. There'll be wailing of city dwellers. There'll be wailing even of professional mourners. No one will escape this sadness. There are no haves and have-nots. Everyone is a have-not. This is very serious. We look at this destruction that is described in the first few verses, 1 through 3. And then we see it again in verses 16 and 17. And we're seeing here again something that we have seen before. It's a bracketing for emphasis. Do you remember in chapter 1 we saw that X marked the spot as we looked at where geographically these nations were? So here, God is narrowing in. He is bracketing in this entire passage with destruction. And He ends on perhaps the most universal and destructive note he can in verse 17. He says, In all the vineyards there shall be wailing, for I will pass through your midst. Now, that phrase would mean something to an Israelite. Do you remember the other time in the Bible where God passes through? It's in the Exodus. It's when God passed through the land of Egypt. Same phrase. When the Israelites put the blood on the doorposts and where God passed through, death, destruction, and wrath followed. The prototype of all destruction. The Israelites are hearing this and they are shaking because God is about to come at them the same way He came at Pharaoh. Now, why is this? Why all the sadness? Why all the destruction? Is God fickle? Has He decided He doesn't love Israel anymore? No. We see this in verses 4 and 5 as we think about Israel's sin because the reason why that there is sorrow in Israel is because there is sin in Israel. First, sin toward God, and then secondly, sin toward man. Now, Israel might complain a bit here. What do you mean, sin toward God? I mean, we're a very religious people. We're an upstanding people. We worship at Bethel. You know the place where we set up a temple with a golden calf. You know Bethel. It's a place where our fathers were. That's where Jacob went, the house of God. It's where Jacob found new life. He went as Jacob and he left as Israel. And we honor that, they might say. We honor the memory of our forefather, Jacob. We think about the house of God. Oh, but not just that. We also go to Gilgal by the thousands. Gilgal was where a shrine was set up 
because it was where the Israelites crossed over under Joshua into the promised land. You remember the 12 stones? And Israel might say, we honor that memory. We go and we worship and we think about the Lord at Gilgal, where Joshua set up the 12 stones. We think about our great inheritance that has been given to us. And we also take long pilgrimages. We go all the way down to Beersheba. Do you know how long it takes to get to Beersheba? And you have to go down through Hick country, through Judah. You know, these people that can't understand what it's like to be a real kingdom. And we go all the way down and we go there because Beersheba is where Abraham was, where Isaac was, where Jacob was. These are all important places, Israel might say. They're showing off their religion. That brings us to a question, if we're honest. How do we show off our religiosity? Do you think the Lord will bless you because your grandfather was a pastor? Or your great uncle was a deacon? Or your parents were founding members of a church? There's nothing wrong with any of that. But do we use that as something to lift ourselves up before God to say that He owes us? Because that's what's happening here in Israel. They're very proud of their religion. And they think God should be proud of it too. You see, the problem here is they have the vanity of resting in appearances and in formality and in specific superficial duties. God lets them know what he really thinks of it. Look here at verse 5. Seek me and live, but do not seek Bethel. And do not enter into Gilgal, or cross over to Beersheba, for Gilgal shall surely go into exile, and Bethel shall come to nothing. Do you see what God is saying to them? Do you think you have new life at Bethel like Jacob did? Because you go there on a weekend holiday? Do you know what Bethel is? Nothing. It means nothing to me. Don't think that just by being there, I will honor you. You think going to Gilgal will get you honor in my sight as you act contrary to my word? Now, this is very interesting because Gilgal is the place where they stopped wandering in the desert. Gilgal is known as the place where the reproach of Israel was rolled away. Gilgal actually means, sounds in Hebrew like the word rolling or rolling away. The reproach of Israel was rolled away. But in Hebrew here, Gilgal shall surely go into exile. All of these three Hebrew words, Gilgal, go into and exile, all sound alike. And you don't need to know Hebrew to get what Amos is saying here. It's as if Amos was saying, at the rolling place, I will roll you away forever. You think you can find meaning there? You'll get rolled away. And don't bother to take this long trip to Beersheba. It's for nothing. You see, the problem is Israel thought they possessed the promises of God simply because they knew things about God. And that's not how the God of the Scriptures works. Inheriting a promise is different than simply knowing about it. 
We must possess it. And so for ourselves, we need to realize that we can often be tempted to trust into what we can see about religion. Our growth. How often we read the Bible. How long we spend in prayer. When in reality, what the Lord wants is our heart work. Hearts that are humble before the Lord. Hearts that seek after God and find meaning in Him. You see, the Lord doesn't want our things. He wants us. That's why he says in verse 4, seek me and live. In verse 6, seek the Lord and live. The Lord doesn't want superficial, formal. But there's another problem here for Israel because once we begin to forget God, once we begin to sin against God, it is inevitable that we forget God and His goodness and how that goodness is expressed. And then we begin to sin against man. Do you see that here in verse 7? O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness in the earth. You see, it's not enough that they are superficial with God. They are turning justice on its head. They are taking something that is meant to be good, justice, and they are turning it into poison. That's what wormwood is. You know what that's like, don't you? When something that you expect to do you good doesn't. Let me illustrate it for you. We've had one or two relatively warm days in the past few weeks. Now imagine that you are outside working in the yard during one of these warmish days. Let's say it's only 101. And you are digging and planting and working and sweating and wiping your brow. And you're almost done with the weeding. And you know as soon as you're done, you're going to go inside and you are going to make everything better with a big, tall, cool glass of lemonade. And you finish up and you go inside and you get the glass and you stuff it to the brim with ice and you pull out the lemonade and you pour it. Oh, I can't wait. And you go and you put it to your lips to take a huge gulp and there's only one problem. Someone has mistaken sugar with salt. Ooh. And now you're wishing you'd never even drunk the lemonade. It's worse than before. Right? Something you expected to quench, to heal, to bless is now actually becoming another source of misery. That's what Israel did with justice. They didn't just ignore justice. They made it so that justice was a dirty word. It was miserable. They used it to abuse others. This makes Israel no different than the other nations the other nations that we saw in chapter 1. And this is why it is so critical for the church to follow God's word. Because the church is to be the mechanism of life in the world. The church is the vehicle for God's blessing and mercy and peace in the world. And if the church looks like the world, what hope does the world have? When the church does not show hospitality... When Christians do not show mercy and love, what hope does the world have for these things? It's worse 
than if they even never expected that from the church to start with. And you see, this type of justice, this type of righteousness is not merely a vague concept. You see, when we think about our behavior towards others, it is not just something we do because it's a part of the Christmas spirit or because it's something Dr. Phil would be proud of. No, we do it because it's an expression of who God is, because God is good, God is merciful, God is loving, and as his people we are called to that standard. We are called to be like Jesus. Israel would have been cheering on Amos in chapters 1 and 2. But you see, Amos keeps coming after them. He says, you know, you think Tyre held a bunch of liars? Well, you should look at yourselves. Because you see, you hate it when someone speaks the truth, verse 10. You are professional liars. You're better liars than the Gentiles. Damascus and Gaza, you think they were good at trampling people? Well, you trample people every day of the week. And this has application to you and me as well. Because what does James tell us that true religion is? It's very interesting. True religion for James is not merely a set of propositions. It's to do what? Not show partiality. To visit the widows to comfort the orphans, to be instruments of good and justice in the world. This is what we are called to do. What hope does Israel have here? Amos has declared they have sorrow because they are fallen and cannot get up. No one can help them up. Their sin stinks to heaven in front of God and in front of man. And you might imagine that an Israelite here would listen to this and think that there is no hope. Even an Israelite who is pricked to the core might go home and sit on his floor and cry. But you see, there's something else here about this chapter. In the same way that we were talking about the brackets of the beginning and the end, there is an X in this chapter. The literary term is a chiasmus. But think about it like we talked about our pirate's treasure X. Where do you find the treasure? X marks the spot. And so here we have at the beginning and the end, sorrow. And as we move our way in, we have sin, sin against God and sin against man. What is in the very middle? What's in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9? What's in the middle of the X but God? Do you see that? God is driving us toward him, showing us our sorrow, showing us our sin, that we might be driven into his arms. In verses 6, 8, and 9, we find God, and we see that not only is God present, but that God is in control. The language here is very specific. We are called to seek God, not formalism. To seek God and to seek good. Not our own good that we get by trampling others. But we are called to seek the Lord because He is powerful. He is the one who makes the stars, who makes the day and the night, who controls the sea. He is in the midst of Israel. He has not abandoned her. 
Now, it may be that this morning you need encouragement with this respect. Perhaps you've done a bit too much watching of television, reading of the newspaper, hearing of the reports. And if we're honest, the state of America can depress us. We hear in our politicians of both parties and all stripes that perhaps one of the very few things that they can agree on is, of course, evolution is true. And, of course, we can't take the Bible literally. And, and we would never want to be judgmental and call anything sin. And we think, where have we come? A Presbyterian minister signed the Declaration of Independence. And then we go out to buy something at the store. And we look and we say, since when were people allowed to go outside in their nightclothes? Why are they acting this way? <coughs> Why are they fighting? Why are they screaming? What is going on? And we can think that America is beyond repair. But just like Israel, we must see that God comes to the church first and He tells us that He is present and He is in control. <coughs> he is powerful and He is merciful. Notice how He draws our attention to Him as the One who made everything. Look at verse 8. He is the One who made the Pleiades and Orion. He makes the stars and scatters them across the universe. Have you thought about how powerful God is by the size of the universe? I read an article just yesterday in God's Providence about a planet that is 4,000 light years away. That means if you could travel at the speed of light, it would be about 10 generations before you could get there. And it's a planet made, they think, of solid diamond because of how dense it is. And that's just a speck of what God has created. God is powerful. <coughs> he controls the day and the night. He calls night day and day night, and it is. When He decides to bring judgment upon the whole world, He does. Look at verse 8. He pours out the waters of the sea on the surface of the earth. It reminds us of the time of Noah. You can't be strong against God. He rains ruin on the strong. He makes destruction flash forth like lightning. The only hope we have, the only hope society has, the only hope every person on earth has is to go to the Lord. To oppose Him is certain destruction. But He is also finally not only a powerful Savior, not only a merciful Savior that reminds us of how lost we are without Him, but He is a life-giving Savior. In verse 4, He calls us to seek Him. Why? That we might live. In verse 6, he calls us to seek the Lord. Why? That we might live. In verse 14, we are told to seek good, that is everything that God represents, and not evil. Why? That we might live. You see, God wants us to seek Him because it is only in Him that we have life. 
What kind of a God would God be if He ignored sin and ignored the end of sin? Do you know what He would be like? He'd be like the kind of father who couldn't be bothered worrying about his son playing in traffic. Who wouldn't have any concern about his children rebelling. Well, you know, they'll figure it out. That's not who God is. God cannot leave us alone in our sin. And so if today you are feeling the pinch of sin, things that make you uncomfortable, that you need to leave behind, that is not a prickly conscience, that is not a nagging mother, that is God, pointing you toward Himself and toward life. Because you see, God mercifully intervenes in Israel here. He sees Israel and how horrible and miserable everything is, and He comes and breaks through and says, it doesn't have to be this way. It's like what our Lord Jesus Christ did. Do you remember the story of Jairus' daughter who died? They call Jesus, and the professional mourners are there. There's sadness everywhere. Everyone is hopeless. She's gone. She'll never come back. She's fallen. And there's no one to pick her up. And Jesus walks through the mourners, and they look at him. What does this person think he's going to do? Everything is lost. Jesus ignores the circumstances, and he ignores the sorrow, and he ignores their unbelief, and he comes right through to Jairus' daughter, and he says, Girl, rise up. And she does. See, Jesus has that kind of power today. You may not be comatose. You may not be on your deathbed, physically speaking. But Jesus has the power to enter into your life and renew you, to renew hope, to renew your marriage, to renew your family, to renew your sense of to bring you into unbroken relationship with God. If you have not come to a point where you know that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior, you must hear today that Jesus brings new life and redemption. God is in the business of this. This is what He did in the Garden of Eden. It's what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I call upon you this morning to believe upon Jesus, to leave sorrow, to forsake sin, and come to Him. And if you are saying to yourself, well, I know the Lord Jesus Christ, then I call upon you now to listen to God in Amos. All of Israel heard this word, but only a few listened. Listen to the Lord. Seek Him every single day, for it is in Jesus Christ that your life is hidden and found. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. We must seek the Lord today in sincerity, not in formalism. God is a merciful God. He interrupts our life. He will not leave us to be complacent. Hear the call and obey it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You this morning that You have called us in the Lord Jesus Christ. You have called every single one of us to Yourself by Your Word. 
And I pray, Lord, even now this morning, that you would remind us that we are completely without hope except for Jesus. That you would prepare our hearts, that you would prepare our minds, that we might worship him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.